Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Denny today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Dr. Denny, for agreeing to speak with me today. Could you start by giving us just a little bit of background on you know, who you are and what you do? I am a palliative care physician who cares for people of all ages. I did all my medical training at the U of R, so I was a medical student there, and then I did the MedPeds residency, so half internal medicine and half pediatrics over four years. And then I did the palliative care fellowship. So it's a one-year fellowship to become a palliative care specialist. And right around the time of my fellowship, I got married and had children. So that is a big part of my story as I look at, you know, why I made certain decisions along the way. So I have a a daughter who's actually today is her birthday. She's turning 11. I have a son who is eight. They're a big part of my story. Well, that's great to hear. As you said, some decisions that you made were heavily influenced by your children. Could you say a little bit more about that? So I always knew that I wanted to have a family. And I always like to think that I'm a mother first. I have a lot of interests outside of medicine, but clearly being a physician is a huge part of my life and the time that I spend doing many things. So that balance between the needs of my family and the needs of my patients is something I'm keenly aware of a lot. (laughs) try to find uh, that difficult balance and not to have either side wanting too much, you know, (laughs) for what they need from me. Do you think you could elaborate a bit on what that type of tension you feel is? Yeah. So our our living situation is that my husband is a stay-at-home dad and has been our whole time together. So we met right when I was finishing residency and beginning my fellowship. And I also was beginning to work in a primary care office at the same time. So I was doing my fellowship part-time and working in a primary care office part-time. And we met and quickly realized that this was the one we were waiting for. And we were both, he's older than I am. So I was in my early thirties and he was 36 or so. So we were mature enough to know that we wanted to have a family. So we got married within the year and then immediately got pregnant with my daughter. So immediately after having her, I I knew that I wanted to breastfeed and was pumping and needing to figure out how to do that at work, having it not interfere too much with my patient care responsibilities. And early on, when they're really small, then you need to pump pretty frequently as though you were home nursing and it's every three hours or so is sort of the longest you can go. And that's hard in a hospital environment to stop what you're doing for a half an hour every three hours. But fortunately, I had a very supportive work environment and I was able to tell people I need a gap in my clinic for a half an hour in order to pump at 11 o'clock in the morning or 1030 or something like that. If I'm on hospital rounds, I would just have to tell my team, I'm going to leave for a little while and I'll be back and I'll be doing notes while I'm pumping. And I figured out ways to prop the little pump things up so that I could type at the same time. And there were just, you know, things like that are necessities for new moms. (laughs) And, but the, I think 
more than that, that seemed to work okay. The, the bigger challenge really was my husband being the only one at home for many, many hours at a time and being really kind of burnt out himself. And I felt terrible being gone, you know, you know really wanted to be home more. So in the first couple years, I cut back my hours to where I was like 80% time or something like that. And well, at first I, w- I just cut down to a one half day a week where I took the, the half day off. And my daughter and I went to a music class that morning and I, I relieved my husband from all baby duties and you know we did like this baby class and then we decided to have another child so when I had my son it was even more (laughs) on him with a toddler and a a baby and so I did cut back to 80% time but you know it's all my income so I'm supporting the house financially and that was a decision that we made together he's an engineer by training but his job had sort of evaporated with the 2008 financial crisis and we made a decision either he needed to move out of the state and get a job or we were going to get married and have a baby. And so we sort of made that decision together that that was what we wanted to do. And he's continued to be the one at home all this whole time. And overall, I think it's been exactly the right thing for him to do. But those early years were tough with me being gone so much and feeling like I knew he was getting tired and really hoped I would come home soon. And do I leave things at work and come home and, and balance that? And I will say quickly that it's gotten much, much easier as the kids get older. Like hugely easier. They're so much easier to manage now. They're much more independent. There's no diapers. (laughs) Now it's more just supervising schoolwork. And then he was actually free of a lot of that requirements, except before and after school until the pandemic hit. And then suddenly he was homeschooling them for (laughs) 11 months, having both of them at home doing online schooling. (laughs) But Needless to say, he's a lot happier. They're back in in person school now and it's hugely easier on him. And so when I know he's in a good place and they're in a good place, then I don't mind being gone as much. That's always been a bit of a balance for me, figuring out, is my family okay? And as long as they're okay, and if they're like, oh, we're out of the park, like, great. Okay, I'm going to stay here and do notes because then I can be done and then I can be free to just come home and be done with everything. Knowing that they're okay has been a huge thing for me as far as not minding working longer hours and that kind of thing. Yeah, that definitely (laughs) echoes something I heard another physician I spoke to where she also said that if her core relationships, and for her, that's kind of her family, like if those relationships are okay, then she feels much freer and empowered to be really present as a clinician to her patients and her coworkers. Very much so. It's like they're kind of pulling you and then your patients are pulling you. And it's a question of who needs you the most. And if both of them need you really badly, it's really, really stressful. But if you know that family's okay and patients, then I can just focus on them. What approaches have you developed to be able to say, like, my patients are okay right now? Because as like a palliative care physician, it's a little, it's a little different <laughs> saying like my patients are okay, quote unquote. Right. Well, like if I know that my notes are done and I've checked my messages and there's nothing really urgent happening and I'm not on call, then I'm like, or someone else is in charge right now. And I can say it's my time to be just not involved. <laughs> I'm not responsible right now. For me, that's a big thing. If I know that I've tucked everything in and then I know I'm like, okay, now I'm home and now I'm doing my other part of my life. How frequently do you feel like these things are done and like dusted? I guess I just hear so many physicians comment about how there's always something that comes in at some hour of the day. 
so my schedule really varies a lot based on whether I'm on service or not. So if I'm in the hospital service and I do adult time and pediatrics time, then it's never ending really. I mean, I come home at night, but I'm on call. And then I know that the pager could go off and that's always leaves you a little bit unclear whether can you go out and hike or something, or can I, what can I do? And like, I need to be near a computer sort of, but then the rest of my weeks when I'm not on service, so I'm, it's about half and half. I'm on service about half the time and the other half I'm not. I'm not. And during those weeks, like right now, I'm, um, I have a lot of downtime. I have clinic and between six and 10 hours of clinic a week, depending on the week. And then the rest of my time is sort of free, although I'm a fellowship director and I have research that I'm doing and several teaching things and planning for next year. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm doing, but this, the time is open. So when I'm not on service, I absolutely get to the point in the day where I'm like, oh, I did what I needed to do today done, turn off the computer. No one's going to page me. I'm not on call. You know, very much I can tuck things in. I mean, there's always more to do the next day, but it feels like I can detach. When I know I might get paged at any hour of the night, it's different. But fortunately, it's like discrete times. And when I'm not on anymore, I'm like, okay, good. I know I'm done for the day. How has becoming a physician changed how you see yourself or amplified different aspects of how you see yourself? It's funny when people ask you, what do you do? I always find it weird to say that I'm a physician because I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. It's really weird because I feel completely comfortable, obviously, being a physician. And I, in, in my medical world, I am a respected career woman. But I guess when I'm in casual situations, I don't volunteer it really unless someone asks. And then I have a hesitation. I don't mind saying I'm a physician, but then when they say, what kind of physician are you? And trying to explain what palliative care is. I find that challenging because people react either, oh my God, that's so depressing or, oh, wow, that's amazing. Like only special people can do that. And I had, my husband went through hospice and, or, you know, like they'll, they, many people do have experiences where they will comment on it, but it's like, it gets you into this whole conversation that I don't necessarily always want to have <laughs> if I'm on vacation or something. And in some ways, I just kind of want to be like the mom, you know, nondescript. (laughs) So I don't know if that's a weird way to answer the question, but I guess I don't go around touting my physicianhood at all. Because I feel like, especially in school settings, there are a lot of the other moms who are stay-at-home moms. And I realize my life is really different, but I don't necessarily want them to see me as different. So certainly if they ask, and people who know me well, of course, know what I do. But I guess I don't want to depress people and I don't want to make people feel like I'm somehow better than them or something. I kind of just want to be like any other mom. It kind of makes sense. What you said earlier that you feel that your identity is first as a mother and then as a physician. And it's so easy for people to latch on to what we do. Right. I mean, clearly being a physician is like hugely important to me. So that's not to say that I'm embarrassed or don't think it's incredibly important. It's more depending on the situation. I think sometimes I just want to like put that to the side and just be like everybody else for a little while. Another question that's popped into my mind was, what are things that you really enjoy doing with your family? I would say number one is outdoor stuff. We have a little homestead. So we have about an acre and a half, a little more than that in Menden. And we have chickens and a big organic garden and a bunch of fruit trees. And we have kind of woods all behind us. And we really like to be outside. You know, we're kind of outside almost constantly whenever we can be. I love to hike and exercise, running and rollerblading and biking and whatever, whatever I can do outside. But hiking probably being the thing I do most with the family. So I like to get the kids involved in nature things. So I was 
thinking about my different identities, like the physician identity and the mother thing, but clearly like an outdoors person and nature lover is up there. And that's something that we all do. And then the other big category is music. I've been a lifelong musician and piano as a young person. And then was in the band and play the oboe. And I still play, although the pandemic has sort of knocked off all my opportunities for playing with other people. But I'm normally, I play with the Penfield Symphony but we just had a year and a half of nothing. So I haven't been playing very much lately, but that's going to start back up. But I'm a regular musician and my daughter's now taking music classes and my husband plays a guitar. And so music is something that we don't do together so much, but we all do it. <laughs> yeah, you all kind of enjoy it in your own way. Yeah, yeah. And those are things that for me are fairly separated from work. Please say some more about that music and medicine project. Going back to med school, I did a humanities project on Mozart and mental illness with Stephanie Brown Clark. And I did the humanities pathway, but I'd got elective time and, and did it. I think I had of like six or eight weeks where I was just working on this project. And I did a bunch of research on sort of the history of Mozart and also Mozart's life and his mental state as he was creating music. And also looked way back into, I was like digging into Rushree's library and finding all this stuff that I never normally would read about how creativity and mental illness can be intertwined. And many, many, many famous artists and musicians of all kinds have had mental health problems and that in some ways that helps inspire them and in some ways the mental health problem may actually help them be more creative and that kind of thing. So I had so much fun doing that <laughs> that all these years I was like I want to do some kind of humanities project and I was thinking about doing a sabbatical about two years ago and I started working on what I thought was going to be my sabbatical project, which was looking at how we use music to cope with death and dying. And originally it kind of came up out of a few personal experiences, like my piano teacher that I grew up with, that was kind of like another grandmother died. And when she died at a very old age, I immediately went to the p piano and started playing stuff that she taught me and her handwriting was all over the page. And just this kind of way of using music to honor her memory kind of triggered me to start thinking about this. And then I was kind of seeing it in all over the place. Once I start looking for something, you see it everywhere. So I did a several month research project of how do you use music to cope with different kinds of emotions, but particularly grief and bereavement. And then what are some examples of funerals and ways that we use music in funerals and different religions. And anyway, and I did a cool presentation for our local conference where I had musical examples and actually performed some music and stuff like that. And it was really fun. So that was a place where I brought my interest in music into the medical world. I am actually going to do a sabbatical, but not exactly on that coming up next year, where I decided I learned from that experience that funeral rites and rituals are not just about the music, that there's a lot of other aspects to the family's way that they cope with a death of a loved one. So my whole project is actually going to be on rituals, bereavement rituals, then focusing on infant loss, because that's kind of what are my research interests are is uh, pregnancy and infant loss. So anyway, those are ways I brought my my liberal arts background and my some of my personal interests into making something I could do with my career that's not patient care exactly, but will help inform me and help me be more culturally sensitive. I really appreciate you sharing that story of when your piano teacher died. It just sounded very touching the way you described it. It wasn't just the music that she taught you, but you still had the pages with her handwriting all over it. It was very moving. And she wrote stuff that was like part of who I am. She would write messages on, on the music and she had this really scrawly, big, huge handwriting. But she was like, you're going to peak now, you know, <laughs> and, like, and like feel it and stuff like that. <laughs> 
so the stuff that she wrote was not just crescendo here and play this loud it was like of the emotion you're supposed to feel in the music and also I'm, I'm kind of curious um how much convincing or how much effort did you have to go through to get this sabbatical year lined up because it sounds like so very important as you say to keep educating yourself in yeah. parts of parts of your field that you don't understand but also it sounds like a great opportunity to just as you said do something that isn't expressly clinical so to mm -hmm. say but is still very relevant to mm -hmm. how you practice it's a great question and it's been years in the process part of it was i had to get promoted to this associate professor level before the university will pay for a sabbatical so that was one thing. And I first started thinking about it probably three or four years ago, but I didn't really know what I would do or exactly how it worked or anything. And then they said, well, you can't, you're not really allowed to do one until you are an associate professor. So I had to get promoted, which happened a year and a half ago, something like that. And then the music thing was my original plan, but in order to get coverage to be gone for six months, my bosses needed time to plan for that. And right around the time that I was talking about that, do you know Tim Quill? Mm -hmm. So he was going to retire and he also was taking a sabbatical and then he was going to retire and so essentially my boss was like you can't be gone next year because I can't I don't have enough people and I said I get it and then COVID happened and actually right before COVID I tore my knee skiing and had to have an ACL repair and a meniscus repair and had a year and a half of hell recovering from that so that happened and and then COVID hit and I was like well clearly this was just not meant to be this year <laughs> but my boss had sort of promised me well then the year after that uh, that Tim leaves, we'll, we were planning to hire a new person. So that we hired one of our graduating fellows to start in July this year, knowing that I was going to be gone for half of next year. And I had to train another program director for my fellowship program. So I started her out like a year and a half ago, initially training her. Then this whole year, she's been doing most things with me so that when I'm gone, she can just cover. But getting coverage to be gone is you have to plan way in advance. And then you have to apply to the provost and get it all approved, which just came through recently. So we planned it for years, but you don't actually know if it's going to get improved until that year. <laughs> I'm also curious, uh, how does one go about being promoted to associate professor? So every university has a system for it, and it's based on a number of criteria. And the U of R definitely has one. It has to be a certain number of years apart. So I think it's seven, six or seven years from assistant professor to associate professor. Plus you have to meet all these criteria. So evidence of extensive teaching and scholarship and the presence on a national level, people outside the university have to write letters of support for you. So it can't just be that everything you've done is within the U of R. You have to have colleagues in other places, which was fairly easy for me because I all of my perinatal research has been with people outside of the U of R. So I had a number of colleagues who wrote letters for me and Right around the same time that was happening, we were writing a book. So I had all these chapter authors who I knew. So I had plenty of people I could call upon to write a letter of support for me. So you have to have seven letters internally and seven externally for associate professor promotion. It's kind of like a checkbox thing. If you have all these things and you've the, the amount of time has passed, then you get promoted. It gives you like a little bit of a salary increase. And then it really mainly allows you some extra benefits like doing a sabbatical. So they pay me for six months to do whatever I want, basically. Which, you know, going back to physician identity stuff, I never would have thought of that as something that I could do as a doctor. The fact that I work in an academic center like U of R, I'm a professor, right? I'm a physician, but I'm a professor, which means that I get to do stuff like that. 
(laughs) I get to spend most of my week doing academic stuff when I'm not on service because I am a professor, not just a doctor, which I think is kind of cool. I I never really thought about that coming into medicine. That was never part of my plan necessarily, but it's one of the benefits that I've really enjoyed. I'm improving my field through my scholarship and my teaching. So even though I'm not seeing patients all day, every day, I still am helping the university and helping the field. I think that's one of the things I've been looking to discover is the kind of different ways in which physicians can participate in this healthcare community. I really like the fact that she pointed out that it doesn't all just have to be patient. There's other ways to give to your colleagues and to the broader community that Yes, end up in patient care benefits, but you know, just right. Like our book, we got paid almost nothing for that book, and it was the first perinatal palliative care clinical guide that ever existed. Huge, huge amount of work. I mean, hours and hours a week for two years, and you know, I just got my first royalty check. I was like pathetic. (laughs) It was nothing. I mean, compared to the amount of work, I mean, it was nice. So get it. But it was like, wow, this was not for the money clearly. But the fact that my job allowed me the time to do it, essentially I was being paid to work on the book because I'm at professor level and and that I was able to do less service time because I had this book contract. So the university sort of allowed me that time. So I didn't really need to be paid for it. And I guess, again, is there some sort of process you have to go through to get them? Because it seems like throughout your story, there's various changes of, you know, that one yeah. time where you were taking half a day off and then you went mm-hmm. to like 80% time and now you're working yeah. on the book and now you're going to yeah, do the yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of that. Yeah. How did I negotiate that? Yeah. What does that process look like? I just talked to my bosses. I've been really fortunate. I have a very supportive group of several different people over the years, but in my primary care office, I told them how much time I wanted to work. I stopped doing primary care after five years. When I was having my son, I had done it for five years, half time. And then I was pregnant with my son and I was like, I just, I'm torn too thin. I'm commuting like three ways, trying to pump and (laughs) just the, you know, breast pump milk for my daughter. And then anyway, I was about to have my son. And I said, I just, I feel like I'm spread too thin between my primary care office and all of the, those patient needs. And then my palliative care stuff. And I wanted to do more of this academic stuff. So I, I mean, I just told them I was going to leave that time, but it was really a hard decision because my patients were going to be really sad. Other times I just talked with my palliative care boss and said, I I really, you know, coming back from maternity leave, I'd like to come back at 80%. And what actually happened is I came back at 80% for about a month or two. And then they said, do you want to be the fellowship director? (laughs) Like starting tomorrow. So I pretty quickly went back up to full time, but I said, I'm still going to take a half a day off so that I can do the music stuff with my daughter. (laughs) And they said, well, as long as you get your work done, you can do whatever you want, basically. So, So I sort of blocked out a half day a week. For until both the kids like went to preschool to where that was like home time. But mostly with the book, I just told my boss, Rob, Rob Horowitz is my boss. And I, I said, I've got this contract. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And is there any way I can do less weeks on service and block out a Tuesday morning or whatever is just going to be book time. And I'll just put that on my calendar. So nobody puts appointments and then meetings during that time and tried to pr- block it out and protect it. And he said, that sounds reasonable. So I still do a lot of service, but not as much as I used to. How did your colleagues respond when you have all these different timing arrangements and are doing all these different things? 
I think a, a lot of us have different things we do. So I probably do more different things than most people, but it's not unusual for an academic position to have blocks on service and the blocks when you're not on service where it's all just a big mishmash of different things. So my schedule is not all that different than like Rob's or um, where, where it's heavily clinical for like certain weeks and then a lot of academic stuff on other weeks. Yeah, I guess I've never actually looked at a physician schedule. In my mind, I just kind of blanketly assumed that clinic was the thing that everyone did most days. Well, I think there are a lot of doctors that do mostly clinical, like primary care doctors and like surgeons, but surgeons will have like operating days and then clinic days, and then they probably have some academic time too. And But yeah, I, I, don't, I really would vary on, on your specialty, I think. Yeah, specialty. And it also sounds like, you know, what type of institution you're at. Like, if Absolutely. You're at this is, I mean, I'm talking about a, a teaching hospital who has great support for their academic docs. If I were not at Strong, I mean, I might have to see a ton more patients than what I do. But for me, it's like a really nice balance. And if I had to do nothing but patient care, I feel like I would get burned out. But as it is, it's like just enough to where I really, like, I keep up my skills. I get to have those meaningful moments with my patients and, and have my continuity clinic, but it's not so much that I don't have time to do other fun things. What makes you think that if you had more patient time that you would be, start burning out? That's a good question. Um, I think I always knew I didn't want to do nonstop patient care because I just saw other people who were just tired and the notes take a lot of time at the end of the day. So my primary care colleagues, if that's all, they were full-time primary care, they were doing notes all evening, every evening. I was like, I can't do that. I have a family. I just, I don't know how people do it. Honestly, I think it's starting to change where more people are realizing that they have to block out daytime to do their catch up on their notes and all their messages and their refills and everything, because you can't have every doctor working till midnight every night. It's just not sustainable. But I honestly don't know. That's one of the reasons I left primary care because those people, like my little cohort, the notes would always take several hours at the end of each day. And then I was still responsible for their calls and messages, even when I was over at the hospital doing palliative care. So they were still my patients. So I was still kind of on for them during the weekdays, even when I was supposed to be doing academic stuff. And, and that was part of why I left. And I just like doing different things. I really enjoy teaching and I kept getting offered to do teaching stuff through the med school, but I couldn't do it because I was offsite in primary care. And so that was a big reason for me to switch to all palliative care, because then I would be housed at Strong and I could go down to the med school and teach ICM or do a lecture or do clinician, master clinician rounds or whatever I, I was like, because I'm here at the hospital available to do things as long as I have the time. But when I was offsite, it was impossible. This was pre-Zoom, of course, but. <laughs> of course, yeah. I was going to say that the, one of the reasons why I had a lot of reservations about applying to medical school was because I had basically heard just these horror stories of physicians bringing homework all the time. And I just yeah. thought to myself, that sounds terrible. I would <laughs> never want my life to be like that. Right. And there are times when it still happens, but it's yeah. for me fairly infrequent that I have to do notes in the evening, mostly when I'm on service and my resident or my fellow hasn't finished their note. And so I can't really attest their note until they're done and I don't get done till seven. And then I'm doing it at like nine, but that's fortunately not very often. This one's a little bit more of a, I guess, hypothetical or off the wall question, but if tomorrow you were told that you could not be a physician anymore for whatever reason, how do you think you would react? That would be pretty horrible. I thought about that when I saw your questions and I, I've envisioned what would happen if I became like disabled or something. What if I got a 
brain injury. As the sole breadwinner for my family, I thought about that. And we ended up buying a lot of disability insurance and stuff like that. Um, Because, oh my God, how horrible that would be if suddenly our family had no income. I mean, eventually my husband would probably have to go back to work, but then he'd have this disabled wife at home. So it would be tough, right? I mean, I don't know why I would not be able to be a physician for any other reason, but I would need to find something else that was meaningful to do. And I think I would just find something. As long as I was capable of doing it, I would find something else that was contributing to the community. And I don't think I could be a stay-at-home parent. It's just not in my nature. I just want, I want to be doing something more outside the home. Like I I originally, I thought about just doing, you know, science and being a researcher or something or um, some kind of community service kind of thing. There are other things I could kind of imagine myself doing, but none of them fit me as well as being a physician. So it would be really tough. On some level, that is comforting for me to hear in the sense that it sounds like you really have this conviction that, yes, this is actually a really good place for me because I get to, as you said, you know, give back to the community, do these various other things. And also, it seems you've found a good boundary of being like, yeah, and then I'm at home and this is stuff also is important. I think that's right. And my husband has commented on it a number of times that how amazed he is that I have such a meaningful work because he never really felt that way with work and it was always a job. And the fact that I have lovely people that I'm around at work that are supportive and helping each other and checking in with each other. And I mean, in palliative care, we have like the nicest people there ever were. So it's, it's a really, really, really supportive group. But I also have a lot of deep satisfaction with the work that I do. So there's no question about whether I'm in the right place. I think some of the other questions I have are taking a little bit of a longer look at your life and asking the question of, are there any people or experiences that have really influenced you to become the person that you are today? Um, as a physician or? In just just as a person in general. Package. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if, if it I mean of course, outside, there are many. Many. I mean, my parents being certainly the most influential people. So my parents are both um, PhDs, but they worked in a medical center. So growing up outside of Houston, and they worked in Galveston at University of Texas Medical Branch. And my dad had a research lab, like basic science stuff. And my mom has a PhD in English. When I was little, she got a job editing people's papers and just like ascended through the ranks because she was so incredibly good at it to being like a professor of pediatrics. So she, she has a PhD in English, not medicine, but her whole career has been in academics. So she basically teaches people to write grants edits grants, works on, with fellows and in pediatrics. And now she's here. So she was in Galveston for many years, but she's been in Rochester for 15 years and is on the pediatrics faculty. So I, I was around doctors and academic type people my whole life. So I always knew I wanted to go into some kind of science thing. And I thought I wanted to be a vet for a while. And then I was going to be an archaeologist. So I liked people's cultures and stuff too, <laughs> but it was like high school and there was no like real exact person that said you should become a doctor, but we, like some of my parents' friends were doctors because of their, where they worked. It was really like in high school that I realized that this was clearly what I wanted to do because I loved all the sciencey stuff and the biology, but I wanted to do something more service oriented. Um, but I thought I might do MD, PhD, and it was college, like summer jobs of working in labs where I realized I really didn't want to do the researchy stuff. I didn't want to do basic science. I just, I had like kind of bad experiences. (laughs) People were nice to me, but I, I never got any like test results that really 
turned into anything helpful for anyone. It was all like doing the same thing over and over and pipetting and always getting negative results. And I was like, why would you do this? <laughs> so by the time I got to med school, I was definitely just on an MD path. And then my last, I guess, big transition was meeting my research partner, Denise, who is an RN PhD. And she and I met when I was a fellow and all her research had been on pregnancies after a prior loss. So if someone had a miscarriage or, or stillbirth or something, and then now they're pregnant again and all the anxiety and fear and stuff that goes with that. Most of her research had been in that. And she was just started transitioning into palliative care for babies when I met her and we just hit it off. And I'd say she has been the most influential person in my career development because she said, let's do a grant together. Let's do a project. <laughs> let's write a book. Let's actually, the book came through me, but, but all our research projects, really, she has spearheaded most of it. And I would not have known how to do most of the stuff that I've done without her. So we're now 11 or 12 years into our collaboration <laughs> And it's been a hugely successful for me, I think, as far as getting promoted and making a name for myself outside of the U of R and presenting at national meetings. It's been really my work with her that's largely sort of launched that part of my career. And it was kind of coincidence that we met. I mean, it was sort of word of mouth. Somebody said, oh, you should meet this fellow. And she just showed up at a presentation I was giving and introduced herself and the rest is history. And now she's like one of my best friends. So <laughs> she's like a mom slash friend. <laughs> it sounds like, at least in what you've been saying so far, that is a lot of who you've become and the things that have allowed you to make those choices have been the people that surrounded you and whether it be your sure. supervisors or collaborators. Yeah. And I think my big turning point for being a doctor was really, I took an anatomy class in high school and it was the first time they'd offered it was that year. It was anatomy and physiology AP class. And the teacher was a science, science guy, but he, I knew him really well. And I think two of us from that class ended up going into medicine and it was just really like a turning point for me, just realizing how excited I was about this subject matter. <laughs> But uh, as far as like, you can be a doctor, I, no one ever told me I couldn't. And my parents certainly said, you can do whatever you want. You know, I never had anybody telling me you're a girl, you shouldn't do that or any of that stuff. I was lucky enough to have just super supportive people. Do you have a rule that you live by that you found has been particularly helpful in your life? I think probably a couple come to mind. One is definitely to appreciate every moment. In palliative care, I see people going through horrible stuff and facing their own mortality and or losing someone they love and and just how precious every moment is. And so I really try to live by that myself as well because I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow with my own family, they're all healthy, but you never know. And COVID certainly reinforced that how uncertain things really are actually and I probably would have had that feeling anyway, but it was definitely been amplified by my work. And the other one is that the need for balance and I can't be a good doctor if I'm exhausted and haven't seen my family and haven't exercised and had some nature therapy and you know stuff like that. Like I have, I know that I need that self-care stuff and it seems obvious to most millennials <laughs> self-care is important, but like our older generation doesn't always quite get that as well. And I definitely have always felt that way, but it's so true with my work. If I am burnt out, it's not going to work. But I was wondering, do you have any examples of how you try and practice appreciating every moment? I mean, I've taken some mindfulness courses and I don't really meditate like ever, <laughs> at least not, not formally. <laughs> Although I, I shouldn't really say that because you can do these like mini things. Certain times around the house, if we're 
having dinner together or we're watching a movie as a family my son always like sits like right next to me and I I just like I don't know I just feel him like melting into my side and I'm just like oh this is the best thing ever you know like this is so precious like I notice that so I try to notice stuff like that and not take that stuff for granted and just be like wow I'm just gonna like treasure that moment even if it's just for a minute so I think it's really trying to notice it more than anything because the stuff's happening anyway whether you're noticing it or not so that's the thing with mindfulness is just being more aware and intention of I'm gonna really appreciate this sunset or I'm gonna really go out and like we have fireflies right now they're all going crazy in the backyard and I love fireflies so like I'm gonna go out and just watch the fireflies for a few minutes (laughs) and not worry about anything else and try to just watch them with my eyes and let my brain just try to stop I would say that's mainly it In terms of that rule of appreciating every moment, how does that interact with the hard moments that you experience in your life, whether it's in your medical practice or in your personal life? Well, part of mindfulness training is noticing the negative emotions too, and thinking of them more with curiosity rather than wallowing in it. (laughs) If I'm um, feeling extremely stressed out by a particular patient, for example, like borderline personality disorder patient or something, or Someone's trying to split us, uh, stuff like that, that just gets you deep down. I'm like, wow, I'm having this really strong reaction to this patient. I wonder why that is. I guess I'm more interested in it rather than just purely letting it take over me. And the same thing if I feel angry, if I'm feeling irritable about something around the house or, you know, normal things and families, <laughs> I'm like, wow, why am I feeling so irritated? Like, this is really not that important. And I try to notice it more with that attitude of this is kind of interesting that I'm having this reaction. And then maybe let me just let it pass. And then I can think about why I'm reacting that way and sort of process it a little bit before I just react. (laughs) So it allows a little pause. I think the sad stuff is something that comes up a lot that I definitely have to process sometimes after work. I see a lot of people dying, right? And families grieving and losing babies and horrible stuff. And I find it kind of builds up. So it's just one family I can kind of, okay, that was really sad and kind of move on. But it starts to accumulate. If I'm on service and I have just a lot of really tragic stuff happening all at the same time, I'll just get really teary and I'll, <laughs> like, I won't be able to hold it in and I'll have to cry. And I often do that on the way home or while I'm exercising or, <laughs> or I'll watch a movie or something and something will trigger it. And like the flood just comes and I have to just let it all out. And then I feel way better and I can kind of move back on (laughs) with things, but. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, both of those are extremely valuable of being present to the things that give you joy and give you that energy that lets you go do the things that you need to do. And also, yeah, you know, being aware of that was really hard and maybe I don't fully understand why. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Why this one's not that much worse than the last five, but suddenly uh, now I'm feeling all five of them. I noticed that during residency that it would build up. And then after, so, I don't know, however many tragic things would happen. And then I would just like have this big bawling fit. And then I got it out. I feel better now. <laughs> and then talking to people, like I do a ton of just verbal processing with my colleagues about tough cases. Emotionally, it, it's, it doesn't always correlate with the level of sadness of the exact situation. It's kind of this cumulative thing. And I think that's a great experience to share with people because I could easily see someone being like, why am I so emotional? This wasn't that bad. And Mm -hmm. just trying to say like, well, we just need to like get rid of this thing because, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, looking at taking the long view. It's not all about that one thing. 
One other question I was curious about was, is there anything in your life that you think is mysterious? Like you don't really understand what that meant or why something happened or what something means to you? So I saw that question and I, I was like, I don't really, I couldn't think of anything, but the way you just asked it was different. And so now I'm, now I'm thinking of things that are mysterious, not necessarily about what, how I got to where I am or my path, but things that I see in the hospital. I think one of the things I find fascinating and part of why I'm doing the sabbatical is to understand people's faith and religious beliefs and how they tie in with their medical decision-making and how they cope with their illnesses because I'm not particularly religious and see the faith piece being kind of mysterious. <laughs> it's like, and I know that's something I have to sort of search for to be able to really understand where other people are coming from. That is a growth area, I think, for me. Um, but in part of why I'm doing this sabbatical on, on rituals is to really understand what that ritual means in the context of this person and their culture and their faith, which is going to, by necessity, require me to learn a fair amount about different religions. And, and I, I certainly have appreciation for how much it helps people cope, but what their sort of thinking process is, is a little less clear to me. I think that was a great answer in the sense yeah. that, um, yeah, there's some things that you don't understand and kind of actually similar to what you said about, you know, how sometimes you feel really strongly and you don't really understand why you know, in this case, it seems more like you see other people, you know, employing different methods to try and cope. Like, well, why does that work? Or how does that work? Right. And yeah. That I'm going to just wait for the miracle and not really listen to what you're saying. <laughs> that kind of thing I find difficult to manage. And... I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who does come from a particularly strong faith background, I've always found it interesting. My relationship towards mystery has changed over the years because yeah. Obviously, most of my education, you know, I was an engineer. And so there's a lot of, well, you know, you just figure it out and you move on. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a whole lot of space for mystery. But in the past few years, I met a friend who was all about mysterious things and all about mm -hmm. just sometimes leaving things of like, oh, you know, we don't know that. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I would sometimes be like, but why? Why is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a, yeah, it's a good thing to, to investigate. Thanks to Dr. Denny for sharing her story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. We were practicing how I speak on the podcast, and he just got really into it, shouting, You're going to peak now, you know, <laughs> and like, feel it. If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.